0: Welcome to an exciting forum of alternative viewpoints and balanced ideas. This is Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. That's Nav C and Nav M. Confused? Don't be, because two halves always become one. Now join us for an energized hour of global viewpoints and shared ideas, only for you. Now, here are your hosts, Nav and Nav.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. I'm your host Nav C.
2: And I'm your host Navem. Welcome to another hour of Alternative Views. This show will help you rethink, reshape and reform ongoing narratives. When we examine the impact of mass communication in the modern age, it's hard to ignore the influence of mainstream media from a social, political and ideological perspective. The manner in which the public receives information about current events is essential to an individual's understanding of society and those around them. Mainstream media is able to shape news stories and this has a direct influence on the views and opinions of people at a global level. News stories are able to mould opinion and the media has the power to influence policy framework at national and international level. And ultimately, this can affect the passing of legislation into law. The power and influence which is inherent in mass media and news journalism can have far-reaching consequences and is usually guided by the benevolence or indeed malevolence of the editors which guide the actions of their journalistic scribes. And this is indeed a responsibility which should not be taken lightly. Media influence has the power to raise awareness of social, economic and political issues. It does this through messages which can either pacify or provoke. The media can dictate policies or overturn them. It can shine light on freedom of thought or even take it away. And to address these complex issues surrounding media influence, we ask, is the media an actor or a perpetrator? Is it a stabilizing and unifying force or perhaps a destabilizing and divisive force? And is the media associated with positive or negative connotations? If the media represents a stabilizing force, this signifies ideals such as equality, nation-building, progress and political stability, and a greater capacity to mobilize towards shared goals. Alternatively, if the media is associated with inequality, then homogenization and manipulation are the dominant ideals. And it follows that national leaders of various political colors who are able to mobilize the media can influence what their citizens see, how they think, and also determine the way they act. Effectively, the media becomes the link between the government and the people it governs. The manner in which that link is used will determine the direction people will take in relation to issues which are relevant to society. So this is the context for today's episode, which focuses on the power and influence of mass media. And although the concept of mass communication can trace its roots back to Gutenberg's printing press in the 15th century, our focus is on the communication developments in the 20th and 21st century. So in terms of structure for today's episode, I'll begin with a short introduction on the reach of mass media. Exactly what and whom does it influence? What is the process adopted by various news outlets in terms of their mode of influence? How does the media set its agenda? And who records history? Then Nafsi will begin her piece on the history and the rise of mass media from the early 20th century to the 21st century. We will then focus on the complex power relations between political and corporate elites and mass media enterprises. And this leads us to the main topic of discussion, which is media bias. What are the main types of media bias? What are its effects, and how exactly does it work? And in the final section, we will ask, have we lost trust in the media, or have the boundaries of trust always been transitory? Or is it true that as an industrialized society, we have simply adjusted to the sensationalism and scandal monitoring of a phenomenon known as yellow journalism? But first, let's begin by exploring two separate themes: the medium and the message. And in his classic work entitled Understanding Media, Marshall McLuhan, who was a Canadian communication theorist at the University of Toronto, became internationally recognized during the 1960s for his study of the effects of mass media on thought and behavior. He introduced the paradoxical phrase, the medium is the message. And when we think about this phrase, it's a complete enigma because... We ask ourselves, how can the medium be its own message? But what McLuhan refers to is that the formal properties of media determine its use and significance. For instance, the message of a news broadcast is not the news story itself, but rather a change in the public attitude towards crime or the creation of a climate of fear. And McLuhan's core message was to look beyond the obvious and seek the non-obvious change created by this new entity. Similarly, other eminent scholars, such as the German political scientist, Elizabeth Noel Newman, added critical analysis to the field of media theory. She introduced a famous model called the spiral of silence, which suggests that people who believe they hold a minority viewpoint on a public issue will remain in the background where their communication remains subdued. However, those with a majority viewpoint will be greatly encouraged to come forward and speak. And her theory reinforces the view that perhaps both media and public are responsible for the formation of public opinion. And it's also plausible to suggest that opinions offered and reinforced by the media may become the popular or mainstream view of the public at large. And this could possibly displace or silence the voices of opposition groups. So how far does the influence of media reach? Well, the impact of mass media is inescapable because it influences the products we buy on a daily basis to the process of electing government officials and politicians. And nowhere is this more conspicuous than in the campaigns of political candidates who put together a team of specialists such as press officers or campaign managers to shape their campaign in the eyes of the mainstream media. Political campaigns have changed dramatically over the past few decades to such an extent that each election contest can be viewed as a struggle between journalists and candidates to affect mastery of the medium. And election outcomes can hinge solely on how a candidate and their campaign is portrayed by the media. And controlling the media is often seen as the key to victory. While the impact of traditional media sources such as broadcast news, newspaper reports and radio broadcasts still hold sway and significant influence on public opinion, new types of media are paving the way for candidates and their campaign managers to convey their messages. Political candidates increasingly look further afield to seek an edge with a more personal audience from the general public so that their message carries greater weight. And in the past decade, candidates have increasingly sought spots on television talk shows in order for their campaigns to have further reach and impact. And these newer forms of message outlet are often referred to as new media, and they account for an ever-increasing influence upon the public. One, And how it's being reported. For instance, in the 2008 presidential election, Barack Obama gained an unassailable lead over his then rival, John McCain, due to his campaign's greater use of the Internet, thus appealing to a wider audience. And in the 2016 U.S. election, Donald Trump made effective use of the social media platform Twitter to reach directly to his core base of supporters. And new media has allowed the general public to access an open forum to listen to various types of views and opinions about their candidates. In effect, internet usage has quickly become the most powerful means for the public to obtain varying opinion on virtually any topic. But as new media and traditional media techniques merge, It's been suggested that it's become more difficult for the public to distinguish between fact and fiction in relation to political candidates, for instance, and also how various opinions are disseminated. This idea of new media is an interesting point because it helps us focus on events and the origin of events. In other words, does history create an event or does an event create history? Or does the event become history? And once we realize this, it helps us understand the complete history behind mass media. Presently, we live in a media-savvy society dominated by newspapers, magazines, radio, television, and more recently, the internet. Journalists are unique participants in this fast-moving society because they facilitate the process of mediation between source and recipient of message. One of the most basic responsibilities of a journalist is to chronicle events or report events as they unfold. Locally, nationally and globally, as events take shape, they are reported to the general public. Therefore, what the journalist initially records becomes the first draft of history. Let us think about this for a moment because it's a unique process. Journalists are able to claim their distinct status because they are in the first instance primary historians. In journalistic language, the first draft of history is a story. And in order for a professional historian to write history, they would first need to explore the drafts that the primary historian has drawn up first. And we already know the news is constantly blended into historians' narratives and eventually it becomes a part of it. So we see that there's a clear link between the process of newsmaking and the process of recording history. From the context of the 20th century, at least, it's fair to say that recording history is a latter version of recording news. In theory, news should be credible because it's based on purely primary events and therefore believable. However, this is a further twist to this unique saga because the first recorded drafts were done so following a professional code used by journalists and based on their ethical principles. But in reality, it doesn't actually happen this way. That's because in the journalistic trade, events are first selected for their newsworthiness. Then they're interpreted, i.e. those facts are filtered. Then they're manipulated based on a unique agenda. And finally, they're given emphasis to create maximum impact. So what we see is that at each step of the way, as events are recorded, they have been influenced. And this is a fundamental point to acknowledge about how media formulates history. And to explain this further, it's first necessary to understand two important functions of media. The first function is the way in which media mirrors society. Mirroring society refers to recording or reporting events faithfully and objectively as they unfold. Traditionally, it's thought that a journalist maintains task is to explore and convey an accurate and true version of events. The late 20th century witnessed the creation of instant global communication networks where events could be mirrored in established sequence, going from event to report to reception. And as the digital medium became fully operational, both print and visual format could be employed in tandem to maximum effect. But it's the visual media which does the mirroring part so much more effectively. And the second function is how does the media set its agenda? And this relates to media's own brand of social responsibility rather than direct pressure from political elites. Social responsibility usually originates from the media's vested commercial interests driven by its owners. And in the course of this episode, we will explain that the media's agenda setting has not always been fair and objective. Indeed, it's when the media seeks to set the social and political agenda that the truth begins to unravel through a mixture of truths and half-truths. By seeking to set the agenda, journalists actively mould the audience's present and historical assumptions. And in this respect, journalists are not our guides, but our great misleaders. So the two functions of media that we outlined previously raise some very pertinent questions. To what extent have the media become actors or agents in the events and processes which they purport only to be reporting? To what extent have the media themselves had an impact on the course of historical events and been a significant ingredient in their development? And what if corrupt narratives have have led to false perspectives and conclusions what if the lessons of history have been deliberately misappropriated and to begin to understand these forceful questions our attention should focus on the growing power of the media industry by the mid-20th century mass media had become a cultural industry with transformative effects on people's perception of the world the rise of powerful media corporations coincided with the growth of the first multinationals, which acquired monopolistic status on an unprecedented scale. So it was the wholesale commercial- commercialization which was central to media's distortion of discourse, and the intention was to persuade the public at large with homogenous and repetitive media messages. And it was always designed to steer public opinion towards a range of agendas. Hence, our main focus in the upcoming section is on history-altering events of the 20th and early 20th century. We explore how journalistic practice has not just reported and portrayed the 20th century's history falsely as it went along, but by doing so, it created consequences and a chain of subsequent events which would otherwise not have happened, or at least not in the way that they did, without the intervention of misleading mass media discourse. And such discourse was in part due to combining mass media with market forces. Traditionally media has always been owned by powerful entrepreneurs for whom maximizing the accuracy of events and seeking objectivity was always subordinate to the business of accumulating wealth and power. So at this point I'll hand over to Navsi who will outline and discuss the rise of mass media.
1: Thank you, Naveem. I'd like to start with a short quote by John Pilger, who is an Australian journalist and filmmaker, because it helps to encapsulate the complex relationship between media and message. He quotes, "'It is not enough for journalists to see themselves as mere messengers without understanding the hidden agendas of the message and the myths that surround it.'" So let's begin by looking at some of the key markers in the rise of mass media. First is media and World War I. In his book, 19, in his 1998 uh, book, Hidden Agendas, John Pilger describes how journalists during the First World War concocted lies in order to make unacceptable truths appear acceptable. Hilger believes that during the 1914-18 to 18 Great War, lies changed the outcome of history and cost the lives of millions of young men. In the UK, for instance, the public eagerly read articles from national newspapers which reported the false version of events. For example, an actual massacre was portrayed as victory and the accumulation of daily lies created an acceptable image of the war. Pilger goes on to say that untruths masquerading as truth did not just provide the public with an incorrect account of what actually happened on the front line, but it ensured that due to the false story, the massacre continued unabated. Quite simply, a barrage of lies determined future events. Furthermore, this view is explored by Karl Cross, the Austrian writer and journalist who was a well-known satirist and foremost media critic of the 20th century. In his extensive uh, satirical work entitled The Last Days of Mankind in 1990, he exposes the intricate process of deception and the transformation of events which revealed the combination of journalistic power and political interests that were controlling it. From the beginning, Cross viewed the war as a commercial operation planned and implemented by those who could profit from it. He described it as a diabolical, materialistic, elite of techno capitalist entrepreneurs, opportunist traders, corrupt journalists and the military leadership. For Cross, the war was just another lucrative episode in a larger long term affair. He argued that the press did not change to his propaganda role all of a sudden due to the outbreak of war. Instead this this was already a part of his structural function, which is It had been practicing for years. Subsequently, the press was successful in gaining control over public thought and attitudes by creating a cultural climate in which war became desirable. The second point is the relationship between media and the rise of fascism. Adolf Hitler understood the significance of media discourse in controlling the minds of the public. Where Hitler became, when Hitler became Chancellor of Germany in 1933, the Nazis controlled less than three percent of German Germany's 4,700 papers. The elimination of the German multi party political system brought about the demise of hundreds of newspapers which were being produced by outlawed political parties. It also allowed the Nazi state to seize the printing plants and and equipment of the communist and social democratic parties, which were then turned over directly to the Nazi Party. In the following months, the Nazis established control and exerted influence over independent press outlets. Karl Krass suggests that National Socialism did not destroy the press, rather the press created National Socialism. Newspapers of that time used used cliches associated with German superiority and Jewish inferiority, and the Nazis exploited them by turning the words into action. Tired cliches like Jewish vermin became a belief fact and later led to the conclusion that it was necessary for the German state to exterminate the Jewish race. Hitler's Minister of Propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, began to use a range of manipulative practices already used by the press and converted them into Nazi propaganda instruments. The third point is media and the Cold War. The term Cold War was coined by Bernard Baruch, a multimillionaire and financier, and subsequently it was universally ad- adopted by uh, mass media politicians and academics and became accepted in everyday um, language. In fact, the term Cold War was always a deception designed to cover up a series of active wars in Korea and Vietnam where millions were killed. The continued use of the term Cold War was designed in the political and economic interests of those promoting and pursuing it. It is success. It successfully promoted a certain message about the Soviet Union as an evil empire and distracted media audiences from the actual political issues such as escalating nuclear arms race. It also served to reinforce five key anti-Soviet themes which were First, the danger of the Soviet secret police. Secondly, the construction of fake Soviet factories to deceive Western visitors. Third, the holding of phony elections. Fourth, the constant narrative conveying economic disaster, including ruined buildings, bread queues and famine due to the inefficiency of the Soviet system. And fifth, uh, secret stores of luxury goods used for propaganda purposes. The anti-communist disclosure promoting uh, promoted through these, re- these things reinforced the Cold War mentality among Western media audiences. Now, it brings us to the fourth point, which is media and the fall of the Berlin Wall. The fall of the Berlin Wall on 9th of November 1989 was a real-time media event millions watched as historic um, watched as this historic event unfolded live on television global audiences were awed uh, by the symbolism of the occasion the event itself was seemingly reported from every angle and detailed rec- and every detailed record was gathered for posterity although Um, it remains available to journalists, commentators, historians, and the public. The most interesting fact is it was a selective and distorted image which was quickly constructed and remains embedded in popular memory. Essentially, it was an assortment of relevant media shaped to further the interests of the West German and US power elite. According to the version, the East German people rose up against their dictatorial government and stormed the Berlin Wall, attacking it with hammers and chisels until it was breached and then pouring through to freedom in the West. The long-term separated German people were reunited Uh, amid euphoria and popular celebration following 40 years of cruel division upheld by the morally and economically bankrupt Eastern communist regime. Thus, the Cold War came to an end in a spirit of universal rejoicing and victory for the West, and internal myths had been successfully created, which, although untrue in every detail, had gained leverage to the presentation of work of the mass media. In fact, the East Germans did not storm the walls. A poorly phrased press statement from the GDR Politburo in early November signaled the imminent end of travel restriction. This travel restriction had already been somewhat relaxed between the East and the West. Furthermore, the fall of the Bernal Wall had little in common with German reunification. What actually happened was not a popular anti-communist uprising. Instead, it was the result of a U.S.-dominated global geopolitics. The event of 9th November 1989 were presented as an annexation of East Germany by West Germany. Media intervention was critical in influencing events and public opinion, while shoring up Chancellor Kohl's, then declining political fortunes in West Germany. Therefore, the media coverage of events preceding uh, 9th November and after were a prime example of biased news ending up as distorted history. Uh, That's all what we have time for in this section. We are coming up to a short break. Much more to come in the next segment. See you shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America.
0: Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. Join Chris Epting every week for the moment. Chris talks to some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, including authors, artists, and athletes. And that's just the A-list. These celebrities and public figures have interesting stories that all showcase the moments that their lives took a certain dramatic turn, changing them forever and shaping them to be the person that they were meant to be. Listen for The Moment with Chris Epting. Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
2: Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Chaney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on
0: Voice America Variety. Do you know that over 70% of people with disabilities are not counted in the workforce with twice the unemployment rate of the non-disabled? Join Joyce Bender, CEO of Bender Consulting Services and a disability leader as she talks about best practices and newest trends in disability employment on Disability Matters. As a person living with epilepsy and hearing loss, Joyce is an international advocate for disability employment. Tune in on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. To find out more about us and the ideas behind our show, visit our website at gmc-radio.com. That's gmc-radio.com. Now, back to Good Morning Canada.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav. Great to have your company. To pick up from where I left before the break, uh, we were talking about the key markers in the rise of mass media uh, and we were talking, uh, just finished talking about uh, the um, Berlin Wall. The next um, point is media and the 9-11 war on terrorism and anticipating a preemptive strike. At this juncture, it's useful to begin with the words of John Pilger, Had the great broadcasting institutions and newspapers on both sides of the Atlantic not merely channeled and echoed the agendas and lies of government, but instead exposed and challenged them, the Bush-Blair attack on Iraq would have been untenable. It is now accepted that the media coverage of September 11, 2001 was blown out of all proportion and displaced other news events. Instead of of educating Western media audiences to a thoughtful investigation of the background and underlying issues involved, and perhaps alerting them to the burning issues of sectarian injustice and exploitation within Iraq, the coverage flooded the minds of viewers with a global scenario of, conflict between good and evil. Media focused extensively on George Bush's axis of evil, war on terrorism, and anticipatory preemption. The BBC presented itself as a trusted source of unbiased information, but instead represented an official mouthpiece for US propaganda. Consequently, the majority of the UK press welcomed this series of events and misled Britain along the path to endless wars in the Middle East. The BBC was complicit in setting an agenda to convince an already sceptical public into believing that military action in Iraq was inevitable and justified. Meanwhile, the British government sought to stifle the opposition and discredit any genuine counter-arguments. The imminent attack on Iraq was presented as part of the continuing war on terrorism, with Iraq being placed at the heart of the axis of evil, thus becoming the prime target for pre- preemptive military strike. It was months after the so-called liberation of Iraq that admissions began to be made in the mainstream media, which challenged the official story and pointed to the deception of the public by its leaders. However, by this time, it was too late for the uncounted thousands of Iraqis who were killed during the invasion and for the many further thousands who were injured or bereaved. Thus far, neither the BBC or Nor the other part of the mainstream media, both in the US and UK, which have been crying foul of Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction, issued any statement that has simply got it wrong. Furthermore, none of these mainstream organizations have admitted to misleading the public or indeed to make a positive contribution to the process which led to invasion and huge long-term social and political damage. What we have seen from the previous section are just a few examples of the dual role that mass media has played in not only providing information but also the active promotion of disinformation. This has resulted in the spread of half truths, distorted facts, exaggerated information, and negative sensationalism, which has affected the course of national and international events. Now, what is the role of media? If we were to examine a brief history of media and its met- meteoric rise over the past 50 years, it would leave the onlookers in no doubt that the speed, reach and power of the medium has been truly breathtaking in some respects this evolution seems almost natural and inevitable given its early adoption of new technology however it's important to pause and ask a very basic question why has media played such an important role in our lives and culture and on reflection we can see the media fulfills several basic roles first being and one first and the f- obvious one being its role in entertainment media acts as a springboard for imagination and an outlet for creativity secondly media provides information and education information can come in many forms which often blurs the line with entertainment. In today's digital world, newspapers, television and radio programs are able to make stories available from across the globe on a wide variety of subjects. The third point is another useful aspect of media is its its ability to act as a public forum for the discussion of relevant issues in newspapers, blogs, online discussions, boards and letters to the editor. Readers can respond to journalists or voice their opinion on various issues. The fourth and the final issue is the media can also serve to monitor government, business and other institutions. Examples include the Watergate break-in and subsequent cover-up, which led to the resignation of then President Richard Nixon. Another recent example is uh, the Wikileaks, a whistleblowing website which began releasing classified u s state department cables. In this particular situation, founder Julian Assange maintained that his primary role was upholding the watchdog role of the media as an online journalist. From these four roles, it's fairly to say it's fair to say that individuals, who receive the majority of their news from one source will have a particular view of the world shaped by the content of what they watch as, as well as the medium itself. This is because each medium has a certain method of conveying ideas which will emphasize a particular style of thinking while de-emphasizing others. Now, can this be construed as a form of bias? According to some media critics, the mass media employs a complex array of techniques which allows reporters and media owners to steer news stories in favour of particular groups of interest or groups or interests. Media bias is a significant issue because of its potential effects on society, especially in relation to the public making informed decisions which affect them. At this point, I'd like to hand over to Navem, who will now explain the complexities of media bias.
2: Thank you, Navsi. So let's start with the obvious question. What is media bias? The influence of media corporations has increased significantly in the past four decades. So just an example, in the USA, currently six corporations control 90% of the media in in the US. And this compares to 50 corporations in 1983, and this immediately increases the risk of media coverage being intentionally biased. Also, on social media, people are heavily subject to media bias, despite the fact that there's more direct interaction which occurs between users. And some researchers have argued that social media users are more likely to actively or passively isolate themselves in a filter bubble or an echo chamber, as it's called, so that they can be surrounded by news and opinions close to their own beliefs. And we can now explain the concept behind media bias, how it arises in news production, and then describe its effects. So basically, there are three main types of media bias – the first type is placement or selection bias. And there are four key elements to this. Firstly, layout placement. This is where the editorial staff will decide on the importance of a topic by its placement in an article. So, an unfavorable story can be buried by placing it in a section which is not read that well. Secondly, there's sensationism. Media outlets will focus on stories that emphasize fear anger and excitement. Thirdly, we have commercial selection, editors will select stories which will draw the the largest possible audience in order to meet sponsor demands, and fourthly, there's visual selection. This is where the selection of images can taint audience perception of a story. The second type is reporting bias reporting biases occur when an article is written with a a, with a particular emphasis or spin so that readers perceive it in a certain way without evaluating its merits or comparing it from a different perspective and the third type is situational bias and here there are three key elements firstly we have geographical bias this occurs when an article includes the cultural and social diversity of a story via relevant issues to those subset groups. and, And any readers outside of that group will have different reactions to the same story. And then there's definition bias. This is an implicit bias which reflects the way in which certain words take on different meanings depending on the context of their use or perhaps the background or culture of the reader. And then The third one is stereotyping. So by classifying and categorizing people or events, this alters the manner in which a story is perceived by the audience. But what we've described is only a brief overview of the various types of media bias. And what we clearly demonstrate here is that the nefarious nature of media bias with its tendency to slant news coverage and alter perceptions of reported topics. And it's generally agreed that a free and independent media is vital to support a healthy functioning democracy. But media bias is a big concern, especially where there's a conflict of interest between advertisers and audiences over content. So let's now look at what are the effects of media bias. Firstly, it has a strong influence over public perception of news events and ultimately impacts social and political decisions. Mainstream media outlets still remain the primary source of information on current affairs. And what this infers is that media bias is transferable to news consumers especially if they consult a very small subset of news sources. Secondly, another effect of media bias is the polarisation of public opinion. It's argued that media bias challenges the very essence of democratic rule, because if media outlets can influence public opinion, then public opinion isn't really an objective concept in the first place. So to summarise this brief section on on the uh, concepts of media bias, we can see that the effects of bias are vast and more significant when individuals are unaware of the existence of that bias. And the concentration of the majority of mass media in the hands of a few corporations compounds the potential influence of media bias. So in the next section, we'll try to understand media bias. How does it actually work? And the first step is to understand that, that there are various forms of media bias in order to reduce its impact. We focus on news production by illustrating how media outlets convert events into news stories and then how those readers consume the stories. So let's first consider internal factors of media bias News producers will have their own political and ideological views, which were already there. And these views are projected through the various levels of a news company. And we know that journalists will will often have a political uh, predisposition, i.e. they usually lean towards a certain political direction. Also, they may introduce bias into a story if, if they know that these changes are supportive of career advancement. And so, external factors can also influence news production. For example, news stories are aimed at a particular target audience of the news outlet. Otherwise, news consumers will switch to alternative outlets if their current source begins to contradict their own beliefs and views. And we also know that news producers may tailor news stories for the benefit of their advertisers and proprietors. For example, they might not report on a negative event which impacts one of the main advertisers or partnered companies providing sponsorship. Similarly, producers may bias the news flow in favour of governments because they rely on them as highly valuable sources of information in addition to these external factors economic reasons are also a factor in affecting the eventual news story for example investigative journalism is is far more expensive than copy editing or working from pre uh, from prepared press releases and ultimately most News producers are profit-seeking companies and hence they may not be so eager to provide bias free information to their news consumers as a primary goal. And all of the previously mentioned factors influence the news production process in three main stages. So stage one, this is what's called the gathering process. This is where journalists will first select and examine events. Stories are named and selected. Journalists will then need to select sources from press releases, news articles or studies to be used within writing an article. The journalists will then decide which information from those sources to be included and which is to be excluded from the article, which will eventually be written. Stage two, this is the writing phase. Journalists will use a range of writing styles to bias the news. And there are two key forms of bias which define the production process. The first is called labelling. An event can be labelled positively by referring to someone as an independent politician. And in contrast, the opposite political party will be negatively labelled. in in one way or another. Secondly, there is word choice. This is how the article refers to an entity. Example, coalition forces versus invading forces. And then we move on to stage three. This is the editing phase. The final stage relates to the presentation style of the story. And this will include placement of the story, its allocation. Example, is it a cover story? And then picture selection, with the use of emotional pictures to grab attention of readers and viewers. Lastly, spin bias. This represents the overall flavor of a news article. And to summarize, the final news story has been subject to various sources of media bias at different stages of the story's creation, because it finally, before it's finally represented to the news consumer, So let's start wrapping up with a final analysis. What we've seen so far is that news coverage strongly influences public opinion, but at times the news coverage of media outlets is far from objective and it's a phenomenon which we've described as media bias. Media bias can negatively impact the public because biased news coverage can influence public opinion and election outcomes. News consumers should be able to view different perspectives of the same topic, especially in democratic societies where unrestricted access to unbiased information is crucial for citizens to form their own views and make informed decisions, especially during elections. Media bias continues to be structurally inherent in news coverage and the direction and analysis of media bias is a topic of high relevance to a society as a whole and more so to policymakers. And we should also point out that when the media delivers biased news reports, those reports present viewers with an inaccurate but not necessarily false or unfair view of the world around them. And we should also introduce the term fake news at this stage, which has been used extensively to misinform and spread disinformation, especially on on sites such as Facebook and WhatsApp. Face, sorry, fake news is a <clears throat> form of propaganda that consists of deliberate misinformation or hoaxes spread via broadcast news or online media. Is created and published with the sole purpose of misleading in order to damage an agency, an entity or an individual. And usually the aim is to gain financially or politically using sensationalist or dishonest or fabricated headlines to boost readership or online sharing. And it's been the subject of constant discussion since commentators observed it played a critical role in the 2016 US presidential elections. So given the media bias exists, can we trust the media? That is a natural question. And audiences will always be somewhat apprehensive about news media content because it's difficult for them in the first instance to verify media reports with various non-media sources. Furthermore, it's even harder to verify the character and intention of those working in the media or assess the fairness of media interpretations of real events. But if trust implies potential gains and losses for the audience, it's also fair to say that the risks and penalties may not be that significant. Because if people believe their time is being wasted with a particular TV program, they would simply change to a substitute station. Alternatively, if they discover the news they relied upon was somehow wrong or incorrect, they may feel duped by inaccurate or unfair portrayal. So let's look at some of the reasons for individuals to mistrust the media. Generally, the press loses credibility and respect when it's no longer believed. In recent years, journalists have earned the distrust of the public, and there are various reasons for this. Firstly, it could be politicians who increasingly rail against the media. And this is certainly true in the case of President Donald Trump, whose core base of supporters have a high level of mistrust against journalists. Secondly, it could be audience mistrust, which can be explained by the increased increase scrutiny of the media, by the media, which has raised audience awareness of journalistic blunders and scandals over the past few years, including the infamous phone hacking scandal at the News of the World in 2011, and also the Dan Rathergate incident in 2004. And thirdly, other explanations for mistrust of the media point to bad sourcing practices, such as the misquoting of story headlines. A mistrust could also be explained by the biases of news consumers based on factors such as race or gender. So let's start creating some final comments now. In the the final analysis, the notion that journalists should present themselves as some form of ideal virtue is actually a very recent concept and when we go back to the 19th century most newspapers in the in the United States for instance were clearly linked to a given political party and the economic interests of the publisher at hand also the so-called practice of yellow journalism was rife at this time and this refers to an exaggerated sensational style of newspaper reporting which emerged at the end of the 19th century when Rival newspaper publishers competed for sales prior to the Spanish-American War in 1898. And I think it's also fair to say that journalism as a profession gained its biggest scalps during the 1960s and 1970s as atrocities during the Vietnam War were exposed. And this reinforced the narrative that existed at the time of imperialist American crimes and political bungling in Vietnam. In addition, there was the Watergate scandal which broke in 1972. And this played out as a victory lap for the, the two Washington Post reporters and the media in general. And it was portrayed as a, a celebratory moment protecting the American people from the totalitarian tactics of a sitting U.S. president. And more recently, we've seen evidence of incompetence, torture, poor planning and collateral damage in much of the coverage of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan during the second Bush presidency. So is it possible that the mainstream media today, which are run as profitable enterprises, think of themselves as morally and intellectually? superior to the rest of us, not just to corporate businesses but to the various arms of government and ultimately the masses of gullible voters as they see them. So what this does, it definitely raises the question, have the ranks of journalists actually moved on from the traditions of lurid sensationalism, scandal mongering and exaggeration reminiscent of yellow journalism? all in the name of circulation wars to generate profits and pursue political agenda. And as a final point, we return to Marshall McLuhan's phrase that the medium is the message. McLuhan emphasized that each medium delivers information in a different way and that content is fundamentally shaped by that medium. And let's take one recent example of this. This is a story which came vividly alive earlier this year. The article was published by the Washington Post on March the 20th entitled, Don't Blame China for the Coronavirus, Blame the Chinese Communist Party. The writer refers to the virus as the CCP virus in reference to the Chinese Communist Party. And there are clear examples of media bias present. Firstly, in the form of mainstreaming, this is intentional or unintentional repetition of a viewpoint to create a clear public opinion. And this is because in the body of the article, the writer repeatedly used three nicknames of COVID-19, which are the Chinese virus, Wuhan virus, and Kong flu. This is despite the fact that people from all over the world have been infected and died from COVID-19. And as we know, a virus is a tiny form of organic matter which causes disease and therefore has no nationality or ethnicity. So what we see is, is there more evidence that yellow journalism has reared its ugly head in the 21st century by making more political capital from widespread human disaster? Or is it the case that Yellow, germ- yellow journalism is, was already lurking in the shadows with a new hidden agenda to focus on and that's all we have time for today's episode many thanks for listening to Good Morning Canada with Nav and Nav we really appreciated your company today to contact us please go online at gmc-radio.com you can send feedback by emailing us at infogmc radiocom please like, share and comment Connect via our social channels, Facebook, Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern.
1: See you then. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to Good Morning Canada. Please join NAVC and NAVM for another great program next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you soon.